Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by Exabel. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I'm joined by Aaron Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph, host of the World of DAS podcast, and previously founder of LiveRamp. In our conversation, Aaron and I discuss the investment industry's relationship with data, the future of data discovery, DAS versus SaaS companies, the regulatory outlook for data, and SafeGraph's recent experiences connected with Roe versus Wade. So in this episode, I'm joined by Oren Hoffman of SafeGraph. Uh, welcome, Oren. I'm really excited to be here. Brilliant. Um, so, Oren, you are. I'm. I'm. I'm really. I'm. In, I'm inviting the enemy in here because because uh, you have a. You're the. You're the host of a much bigger and better podcast than, than this one. <laughs> and uh, and I'm very very lucky to have you because you are the. You are the host of the World of Das podcast, which is which uh, has been going on for for a, for a long time and is much more well listened than mine. So so I am as I say, I'm <laughs> delighted to have you, and it's a and it's a great privilege. Um, but um, you are also the CEO of, of SafeGraph, as I mentioned. Um, so why don't we begin by, why don't you just introduce SafeGraph, what the company is, what it does, just to, just to kind of set the scene a little bit. Sure. SafeGraph has data about physical places. So if you want to know about the boring data, about the store hours of the local Italian restaurant or something, that's what SafeGraph has. It has data about lots of different data about different types of places. Today, we cover a little over 30 million places around the world, and we cover things like their operating hours, uh, the shape of the place, the square footage or square meters of the place, um, a lot of other information about like the phone number and other types of things that you'd want to know about a given place. Brilliant. That's that's at the scene. That's what that's what Safegraph is. You're a you're a genius podcaster. Two two major two major rungs. Another part another rung of setting the stage of of Oren Hoffman is that you are the CEO and co-founder of LiveRamp from from April 2006 to September 2015. So you're now a you're a serial entrepreneur with 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 serial success under your under your belt. So um so as I say, a very uh, very impressive. Oh, um, thank you. Would you like to talk about LiveRamp to to kind of set the scene there, say what it was, or is it is it in the past? Sure. I mean, LiveRamp is a, is a is a great company. LiveRamp is a middleware company, and it moves data for uh, most of the marketing technology world. So it has uh, oh, about seventy five mar- uh, percent market share in its niche. Um, and it's the core uh, mover of data about mar- about marketing for B two C marketing. Okay, and so. How I'm interested in the changeover. I'm interested in um, so according to LinkedIn, you leave LiveRamp in September 2015, and in April 2016, you're you're founding SafeGraph, um, and you didn't even have a, a pandemic to explain the the uh, the desire to create something, which a lot of people seem to have had. You know, I must go and start this company. How did um, how did how did that transition happen? How did you realize that SafeGraph was what the world needed? Well, we, we, we believe that the, that most of innovation sits on top of data and you can see a world where innovation is much, much slower because most of the world's data is controlled by 12 companies. 
and uh, and that's a world that nobody wants, including the people in those twelve companies. Uh, or you can see a world where data is democratized and access to data is a lot easier to get. And that's a world where we're going to see a lot more innovation because anyone, any innovator should be able to get the building blocks to, uh, to, to innovate. Just like today, any innovator can get access to compute. All you need is a bit of technical knowledge and a credit card. The same thing should be true of data. And so how did, uh, so how did, how did SafeGraph come about? So if you think of data, data is really about four nouns. Almost all data is about four nouns. So it's either about people, places, organizations, let's say companies, or products, right? And so almost all data you could think of fits in one of those four buckets. Of course, they can be crossed with each other. They can also be crossed with time and price. Uh, but if you're starting a data company, it's nice to think of those four buckets and at least try to fit clearly in one of those four initially. So we're clearly in the places bucket. There are other companies that are in the people bucket or the, the organization bucket or the product bucket, et cetera. And, um, and once you pick a bucket, then you can really innovate it within that, within that bucket. Is the idea of the metaverse, the enemy of the places bucket? Well, there are places in the metaverse as well. So <laughs> Okay, so so you can you can seamlessly move. I mean, the the risk is with the metaverse that um, presumably the the creator kind of owns the places somehow. So it's a world which that's they, right which they own. Whereas whereas in the real world, the places are are kind of owned by everyone to an extent. Correct. Yeah. Um, but we we plunge straight into the metaverse. Um, but so um, and so you so you looked around. You saw that the world was full of places and that places are important to people um, and that you um, that so this is data which which would have value um, safegraph is does a similar product to Google Maps in a way doesn't it safegraph is 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 mapping the world um, and finding out all the opening hours and and, and things like that um, for and and you sell this data to the to the competitors of Google Maps. How, how well, that's right. Describe describe a little bit more about Safegraph. Yeah, that's right. So if you think of just think think of just something like the operating hours of a store or something like that, it sounds easy, uh, but just knowing those hours is really really hard. First of all, they change a lot. In 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 the pandemic, in the peak pandemic, they were changing every day. Uh, but even even in regular times, they're changing monthly. Um, sometimes they're changing because you're trying to get more profitability. Sometimes they're changing because you're trying to get more market share. Sometimes they're changing because you just can't get labor to staff your organization. You have to cut back on hours. Um, there's lots of reasons why these things are changing. And then and then the and even if it's normally open at 7 a.m. on a Tuesday. Well, on Christmas, it may have very different operating hours or on, on certain holidays, it might be different. So just, just, you can't just have like a Tuesday in your model. You need to have a pretty complex model to, to get all the edge cases as well. Uh, so even if you just think of that, like very, very simple thing, like the operating hours of a store, it's actually really, really, really complex. Um, and even a given place may have uh, thousands of data points just for the operating hours. And so uh, I, I kind of I mentioned Google Maps as being a, uh, a, a me as a user wanting this information, um, and so I and so Apple Maps will be doing will be doing the same thing. Um, that so opening hours is an example. What what kind of what kind of user what kind of use cases could you just run down a little bit of um, the extent to which your data can be useful to, to various audiences? Yeah. So I mean, if you're trying to 
if you're trying to pot, plot places on a map, that's where safecraft data can be really, really valuable. Um, and when we win, when people really, really, really want to focus on quality, where quality is the most important metric. And, and often you have this tension in data where you've got, a, you've got quality on one side and breadth on the other side. And, um, and some people, especially like for marketing needs, you often want to have breadth over quality. In other cases, quality is more important than breadth. And so we started, you know, now we have quite a bit of breadth. We cover over 30 million places. But when we started, we started with- All, a all very, over the world? Uh, yeah, all over the world. When we started, we, we, co we covered a very, very small number of places and just in the United States. Um, and then we slowly added more places, but we want to add it with the same quality bar that people are used to with the safe graph data. Are you all about opening hours? Uh, I mean, we have lots of different data. Opening hours is a great example. We also have like the shape of a place. So you can get things like the square meters of a given place and the category of a place and the phone number of the place, you know, all these other kind of like core data that you'd want to know about a given place. We don't have uh, thousands of attributes on a given place because we want to be correct so we want to, when we, when we say a fact, we want to have very high confidence that that fact is true. Do you and have, by the way, that, that, if you think of data, like that's one of the most important things, the most, one of the most important things in data, if you think data is just facts is that the facts are true and too often data companies and people who are buying data, forget that, that the most important thing in the data is that the data is true. And of course it will never be a hundred percent true. Um, we have billions and billions of facts at SafeGraph that can't all be right. Even if it was right in the past, it may not be right today. But your your goal should be to get them as true as possible. Absolutely. Um, you, we've touched on commercial um, properties. Would you would you uh, would you um, veer into residential properties as well? Is there an element of of, of uh, do you have data on them? We, 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 we don't have data on residential homes today, though that's something eventually we want to add. We do now have data on like large apartment complexes and detailed some detailed information about some of these large apartment complexes. Uh, but one day our goal, our ultimate goal is to have data about every single place in the world and every relevant attribute about those places. So if you think of your home, you might want to know about the number of bathrooms or the school district or the what the soil is made out of or what the roof is made out of. We don't have any of that data today, but that's data that we aspirationally would love to have over time. It may not be you, but I have I have long thought that there is a need in the market for a, a kind of reviews or or a message kind of a, like a yeah a review center for um, landlords. Um, so oh yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah, because because you are need to provide reference as the as the um, as the tenant, you need to provide a reference. But uh, quite often the landlord is appalling, and you've got no way of finding out. <laughs> actually, if you're leaving a terrible landlord, you want a way to tell future people to watch out for it. So yeah, absolutely, think, that's a great idea. <laughs> there's a need, but um, okay. And so we end up with a kind of world map. Um, with um with information on on and every uh building you know uh when it's when it's finally when the when the vision is complete but it, the vision is well underway yeah and by um, the way it's not just buildings so if you think of a, a cafe like a starbucks or something it's usually a very small sliver of a building it might be one thirtieth of a building and understanding that shape that polygon of that individual starbucks even though it's only a subset of the building is really important as well fantastic okay and so 
um, that data in terms of uh, who it is useful for. Um, we've touched on the um, so the the maps and phones and and uh, me going to going to my local butcher and finding out its opening times. Um, what about uh, who else wants this data? Well, so yeah, it could be local search could be a good use case for it. Anyone in logistics who's moving things around will want to know things like warehouses and power plants and train depots and um, anything like that. Um, so that a lot of our customers are are in the logistics world. Uh, things like who are uh, uh, a lot of software companies that are selling to retailers, software companies are selling to insurance, software companies that are uh, selling to for insertion like marketing and advertising. Anyone who wants to understand the physical world will often want to have data about what that world is. Mm-hmm. Um, has there been yet any investment or corporate interest? We sell to investors, whether it's private equity or hedge funds. I can tell you in general that the sophistication of the investors when it comes to data is not as high as one would expect. There are a small number of investors where they're incredibly sophisticated about how they use data and how they build products on data. But the vast majority, um, even we're talking about funds that could be 20 billion AUM funds, the vast majority of funds, their sophistication level is very, very, very low. Have you got a hedge? Have you got hedge funds in mind when you say that? Or are you talking about all investment, the whole investment community? Uh, certainly, hedge funds, private equity funds, um, big real estate funds, all those places. The the amount of sophistication they have about how to operationally use data, they can use data in a given project, and so it's a very like research heavy thing where they're often like bringing data in, kind of like a, a very data science approach. Um, to, to doing it for a specific project or a specific deal. But if you want to actually operationalize the data and put the data into a product, uh, very, very few funds have the ability to do that today. We're talking like a small number that you could count on your hands and toes. Who, who is the best in class for that? <laughs> no, no, I, and I'm sorry, I don't mean hedge fund wise. I mean, outside of the investment space. If they were looking, for example, to hire somebody from another industry to bring that type of thinking into the investment industry. Well, I think, what, I think where, like where software companies are really good at building products. That's what they do, right? So if you think of a software company, they're building applications and they, they're, they're not just building applications for an internal user. They're building applications for external users. And once you start building it for external users, you have an extremely high bar because these external users have to, you know, they don't have to use it. They, they often have alternatives uh, they, um, things like, you know, how it works and the workflow and all these other things are, are really, really important to it. And so once you start having external customers, you're just going to have a much higher product bar. And so just like the, um, the level of product talent and the level of engineering talent at a software company is usually much, much, much higher than at an average, um, you know, investment company. Again, it's not, it's not always true. There are some investment companies that are just incredibly good at that, but they're very rare. Why do you think that is? Have you got a view? Well, I, I just think if you're a uh, uh, if you're the head of an investment firm, you've maybe never built a product before. Um, you're really good at being an investor, and that that's worked really well for you. And you haven't had necessarily to like productize anything. Um, and often, some of these investment firms, even though they may be have billions of AUM, have very small number of people. 
Like you need a decent number of people to actually build products. You need real product managers. Often they don't have any product managers really in the, in the whole, in the whole company. Um, and then you need like real application engineers, real backend engineers. And, you know, sometimes they have a few, but they don't, that it's, it's not the same level of caliber that they're focused on. And if you think of a, a, you know, a typical tech company, well, the CEO is often like a product manager in the past. That's what they do. They, they've built products. They know how to build products. And so you would expect that they would be better at that. Of course, you know, a typical tech company wouldn't know anything about how to invest. Um, so you wouldn't want to give them money to invest or anything like that. That's not their forte. They know how to build products. I'm just trying to I'm just trying to think around this a little bit. So you're talking about products. And so from a software perspective, developing a product is uh, you've got a resource, which is data, and you are trying to create a, uh, a kind of usable bit of software, which um, you can then it could be used by a large number of people. So you want it to be efficient, you want it to be robust, you want it to do have have a very useful to, uh, purpose. Um, something like that, and so it's a it's a it's a kind of plus some game because the better you get it, the more people you can reach, the etc. Um, and and there is an element until your competitors come up with something better, you've got an element of kind of you know you can you can rest on your laurels. Uh, well, you never rest rest on your laurels. But you get the <laughs> idea. Um, but in from a from a hedge fund perspective, um, it is. And I don't know if you would agree that it is a kind of, it's a like a, a the dog eat dogness, the competitiveness of the world in which they're in is so advanced um, that uh, uh, that perhaps there is no moment where you can just go, okay, we built it and it functions, and then it, it just kind of you know off it goes. Um, you have to be project project minded because you get a data set, you find it has money. And that's and then you build a product, but it's a very short-lived product because somebody else discovers the data set, or some, or somebody, or the guy who uh, who developed the algorithm, which which was making you lots of money, moves to your competitor, or something like that. There's so much money and there's so much that can be thrown at it that actually it has to be fleeting and short-lived. Yeah, I think I think it's a question of like, what are these funds businesses, or are they a collection of a small number of super smart individuals? And so certainly there are certain funds like a Renaissance technology that is a business. Mm. It's a great business. It runs, it, it has super incredible people. But if, even if you take out the top five people at Renaissance technologies, like they're still going to be one of the top performing funds. Um, they're, they're a business. Um, mm. Most of these funds are actually a small number of super impressive people. And if you eliminate like two people from the fund, the fund goes from a top quartile fund to a zero hmm. uh so they're so they're kind of cottage they're big cottage industry companies or in a way they're all they're kind of overgrown garage companies which are which are well yeah. i mean again they're they're very reliant on a small number of incredibly talented people and uh whereas a typical business let's say a software company or something like that like once it gets to a certain stage like it's an actual business you can eliminate the top five people, again, you might take a hit on the business by eliminating those top five people, um, or if they left or something like that. But, uh, but it's still a, a actual product that has, uh, lots of customers and users and et cetera. I'm, I'm completely with you on the Renaissance technologies example. And, and there's a wonderful, um, book written by a wall street journal, um, journalist, 
former, maybe, um, about exactly how that worked and essentially that, and it's as you describe, that company has found a way to develop a product which just prints money, essentially, with data going in one end and then and then essentially the software or whatever has been able to predictably do that. Um, I'm struck in having done 94 episodes or whatever I have of this podcast, how rarely that company has come up in terms of as being a competitor, as being a and as being a place where X, Y, Z, it just it, it doesn't seem to be um it almost is in a world of its own. It feels to me. I may be wrong, but it's well, just well, my, it my is the it, Renaissance Technology is the most successful hedge fund of the last thirty years. Um, I, I, yeah, and there's not even a close number two. And I think the reason is is because they've oper they're actually a company. Like they've operationalized everything. They're um, again, they have incredibly talented people there. So I, I don't want to take away from the people there. The the people at Renaissance are super smart and amazing. But they um, they have operationalized it so that no one person is essential for the ongoing success, and that is how you, that's really how you define a great company, um, where like it's not reliant on any one individual. It could survive if that one individual uh, leaves the company. It's an interesting conceit that potentially the hedge fund industry, which contains so many of the finest brains in 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 the world, or, or at least in the U.S. or whatever. Um, has only produced one great company. <laughs> it's, well, it's... well, uh, sorry, there, there are certainly more than one, um, um, but they're the greatest of them all. Yeah. And then even if you think of private equity firms, uh, many of them start out, like if you think of KKR, it started out where like it was very reliant on a very small number of people, but now they have, they have graduated to being a real company now. Um, where, uh, where again, you could take out the, the, the top 10 people, the top 10 leadership people, and it would still be an incredibly amazing institution. So these things can evolve over time, but it's usually pretty rare. Usually once the top person leaves, the, the fund no longer exists. So let's, let's play this forward. Cause I'm, I, I find this a very interesting theme. Um, if let's say the investment community got good at productizing data in the way that the software companies have. Um, do, I mean, it's, it's such a huge question, but do you have any vision of, of what that might look like beyond the Renaissance or is, is the Rentech example, you know, just a, there would be a lot more companies successfully doing that. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're also, they're, they're incredible, they're incredible number of adjacent companies to the investment community, whether it's like a Thomson Reuters or a Bloomberg, or, you know, if you just think of all these companies that are adjacent, um, that, that have pro that are, that, that have productized and, and that are, that are incredibly successful companies. And some of those are data companies. Some of those are application companies. Some of them are services companies. Uh, some of them are some sort of combination of those. Uh, but, but they, they are there to support, uh, the uh, the investment community. Where do you think we're going on the on, or do you have any views on where we're going on the monetization of data in terms of here we are in twenty twenty two. What are you seeing as the cutting edge of um, how data will be monetized? And we're just beginning to see it being monetized in new ways. Well, first there there are companies that are pure data companies 
And these are companies that sell facts. So I put SafeGraph in that category. And there are companies that are application companies that are built on top of data. Sometimes they have proprietary data that they're built on top of, uh, but they're actually providing more insights on those facts. And so it's helpful to differentiate those two. If you're actually thinking of a pure play data company, data is a tough business. And the reason why it's a tough business is there's not that many companies that you could sell your data to uh, because most companies are not yet sophisticated enough where they could take data in as an ingredient and then build these like impressive applications on top of it. Now, the good news is, is that the number of those companies is growing uh, in every industry, whether it's the financial industry or the insurance industry, or you, know, you just go through at retail, et cetera. In every single industry, the number of uh, companies and organizations that can buy data is probably 5x than it was five years ago. So it is growing, but it's growing from a very, very small base. And the 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 hope, if you're a data company, is that it will continue to grow at an aggressive pace. So five years from now, we're going to see a much bigger market that one could sell data to. So we are in, well, data is, data is the new oil has been the, 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 the statement for, I don't know, five years or something. Um, what we are seeing is the arrival of the new plastics manufacturing. That's right. Taking- there, are, there, are, there are, you know, potentially way more buyers for this oil today than there were before, but there's still not that many. And so we expect if you're a data company, hopefully you expect that there'll be even more buyers in the future. If the number of buyers of data stays constant, this is probably not a good time to start a data company. If the number of buyers grows exponentially over the next five years, then it is a good time to be a, to start a data company. How are you seeing changes in pricing of data? You've been doing this for a while. How is, how is the price of, of data changing? Well, ultimately, Data prices, prices for data per data element should go down over time and not up. Um, so if you think of the price of compute over the last 10 years, let's say the price of some sort of AWS instance has gone down dramatically. Now, your AWS bill may have not gone down because you're using a lot more of that compute. Um, but the price of any given piece of the compute has gone down dramatically. I expect the same thing with data, where the price of any given fact should go down over time, but your budget for data and how much you're spending on data may go up dramatically because you're getting more and more value from it. What do you see as the... Um, so in this community, in the in the kind of alternative data investment community, then um, the, the question of data discovery has, has been through various iterations. Um, there has been a push towards um, potentially a data marketplace um, or, or various cloud providers have, have tried to introduce data marketplaces, et cetera. Um, what do you see as being the future of data discovery? How will customers who are in the market for data find it? It's a really good question. Um, so no one's cracked that today. It's very hard to find the data that you want. Uh, there are lots of different marketplaces. None of them really are that great yet. Um, and uh, they're still very, very nascent. They're still all figuring it out. So uh, I, I think we will see that evolve over time. It's certainly something that's needed um, in the world, but no one's been yet been able to crack the code of uh, doing dis- data discovery is hard. And par- part of the reason it's hard is because if you think of those four nouns, they're all very, very different. 
Um, and so if you're trying to do data discovery across all of those four nouns, it's really hard. And then, okay, well, what are you really doing? Are you just, uh, are you just like a search engine to allow people to find data? Or are you actually doing some sort of evaluation on top of it? And then how people want to consume it is different. And there's data is uh, basically sold by the rights that you have to that data. So do you have the right to resell the data? What, what, how are you going to use that data? So all the different pricing on that is very, very complicated. Uh, so it is, there's, it's not like a standard skew, um, like a Pez dispenser or something where like it's easy to put into a marketplace. As a, uh, as the, as the host of the data as a service podcast, um, if you were a buyer of alternative data, for example, and the fact that you kind of sit a little bit outside potentially alternative data as, as a kind of, you know, the majority of your business, um, if you're a buyer of alternative data, what would you look for in a data provider when you were making that decision? How would you how would you go about judging a, a data provider? Well, the first thing is is the transparency of the data provider is really important. So the, to, to me, as if I'm buying data and we do buy data at SafeGraph, when I'm buying data, one of the things that we're looking for is how transparent is the actual seller of the data? Like, um, do they have a, a good docs page with all of their schema? Is their schema public? Um, do they uh, publish their fill rates on each of the items that they have? Um, is there easy ways to evaluate the data? Um, do they even publish their own evaluations of the data? Do they tell you when they have bugs in the data? Um, how quickly do they fix those bugs? Do they have a history of showing you, you know, the warts of, of everything? The, uh, the more transparent they are, um, the more confidence you can have that their data is actually correct. So what about from an investor's perspective? If you're an investor and you were looking for a data company to invest in, what would you, what would you be looking for? Well, so if you're an investor in a data company, I think it's really interesting. There's so much written about SaaS companies and how to invest in SaaS companies and what the core metrics are to look for in SaaS companies and how to evaluate a SaaS business. Uh, and that's because there are over a thousand SaaS unicorns that are out there uh, that have been started over the last 20 years. And so there's just a lot of data on these SaaS companies and there's just a lot of people who have been successful investors in these SaaS companies. Data is much different. Um, there's only a small number of unicorns, you know, maybe like Zoom Info being one of the more famous ones that have been started in the last 20 years. And data has, it looks somewhat like SaaS, but it's kind of like the ugly stepchild of the of the, of, of SaaS. Uh, and there's some really, really big differences. One of the most interesting differences is understanding the margins of a data company versus understanding the margins of a SaaS company. When both of these companies are at 100 million in revenue, they actually look pretty similar. Uh, but when they're at 2 million in revenue, the SaaS company is very easy to understand the margins. The data company is much more difficult. And that's because for data companies, if you're buying data, in most cases, you have to put that data cost in your, in your cost of goods sold, in your COGS. And so it goes above the line and it kind of affects your margins. And at 2 million revenue, if you're spending a million dollars buying data at 2 million revenue, your margins don't look very good. Um, now at 100 million, you may still only be spending a million dollars in revenue or a couple of million dollars in, 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 uh, in data costs. And now your, your, your margins look great. But it's very hard for the average investor to understand how that changes over time, that these 
these quote unquote variable costs are actually just fixed costs. Um, and understanding that is not that easy for someone who isn't steeped in data. Do you think it's easier to get from 2 million to 100 million as a, as a DAS company or a SaaS company? It's much easier as a SaaS company to, to grow. It is much, much easier if you're an application um, to get sales. The sales in the in the data companies are much stickier over time. They should have less churn. You should have less competition. You should be able to expand them better. But getting initial sales in data companies is much, much, much harder than in an application company. Is it possible that it's easier to exit from a data company as well because it's it's very reliable revenues on an ongoing basis and harder to potentially, I don't know, outcompete or whatever or come up with a new stream? I hope long term that's true. Uh, in in to date, that has not been correct, and and so there's just been way more. It's been way easier to start SaaS companies. It's been way easier to grow them. It's there are way more uh, SaaS unicorns than than data than DAS unicorns. Um, it is um, there's a way bigger market to sell into. Uh, that that that's changing. And so the market for data is growing and is growing quickly, but it's still a very, very small percentage of the market for SaaS. Do you have a view on which side has has um, suffered less in this in this downturn in the last six months? Has that have investors punished one side more than the other? Well, investors have punished SaaS companies more, but that's also because SaaS companies had just much higher relative valuations than data companies, and so they were in some ways more easy to punish. Uh, than than a typical data company. What impression are you getting of the of the the VC market right now, or the or or the or, or a step up the chain in terms of appetite right now? And and you know, obviously, there's been some 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 hits and valuations in 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 this period. Are you are you still seeing appetite out there? Are you still seeing a desire to get involved, or is or is it or are doors closed now? I I think it depends on the time frame. I think in the summer of 2022. I think most venture capitalists are taking the summer off and they're not investing at all. They're they're hanging out with their family in Europe. They're not they're not making new investments. They're too scared to make new investments in this in this falling environment. And so it's not that you would expect companies are getting funded but just funded at a much lower valuation than before. Basically most of those companies they're just not even getting funded. So if you are looking to raise capital right now, unless your company is just like an amazing company, it is extremely difficult to raise capital. And, and my advice to most, whether it's a software company or a data company, is to keep your costs quite low uh, because raising capital, at least in the next year, is going to be a very, very difficult task. What were the what were the four things you started off with as being the uh, the things you can have data about? It was place, it was people, uh, places, people, organizations like companies and products. Those are the four main nouns of data. And do you see any of them? Is it is it is it, is it are any of them closing up? Is it now is places covered? almost and and you need to be looking elsewhere no I, I, and i think each of them each of them is a very big market for data 
the data about people is is a more difficult market because uh, because their 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 data about people is much more sensitive, and so you have a lot of privacy that goes into data about people. Whereas about data about places, organizations, and products, you you don't have uh, usually as many privacy concerns. You know, knowing the number of bathrooms in the local Starbucks is not as much of like a privacy concern, or you know, the menu items of a local Starbucks or something, um, as it would be to know data about like a given person or something. Mm. So the data about people is a much more difficult one to to do, uh, but the other three are are pretty standard. Um, where do you see? So you touched on privacy. Where do you see regulation as? being most relevant in 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 your space and and in kind of the the selling data as a as a service space in general where would you be watching for the next shoe to drop is it all about privacy or are there or would you be looking elsewhere well well privacy is very very important especially getting that that noun about people um, privacy is incredibly important you want to make sure that people are safe and that protected and privacy in in itself is is um is is good but in, if you if you're talking about privacy without security, it's 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 um, it, it doesn't help. So you not only have to make sure that data about people is um, has has high privacy protections, but you want to make sure that that data is secure um, because you could have all the privacy things in the world. But then all of a sudden, if that data is sold on the dark web, like it doesn't matter. And so you want to make sure that the security piece of that is there as well. And then the others on the other three nouns. Um, we're seeing this really, you know, from from a government perspective, we're seeing the ability of like opening up data a lot more. And one of the really great things in the last ten years is how open so many governments are about um, uh, uh, giving their data to public. And so, if you think of like the the city of London has just an incredibly open um, data portal where you can find data about all these like super interesting things, and it's right. available to anyone in the world, not just people in London, but literally anyone in the world who wants to go out there and, and wants to go discover that data. And that's amazing. And the city of London is and is not an aberration. That's true in, in thousands and thousands of cities all over the world and governments, federal, state, et cetera, that are, that are releasing this type of data. And that could be, you know, data about local, um, understanding the local economy to the COVID um, scores to you know a whole bunch of other things that are out there. And this is really, really good for the world, um, getting that data out there so that researchers and innovators all over have an opportunity to look at this data and review this data. I don't know if you know, um, the city of London is a, is a, is a, as, as with so much of the United Kingdom, is a, is a strange archaic beast. And actually, there is a part of central London called the city of London, which has got its own, it's almost got its own government. But it's, if you, if you, if you live in that special little area, then you can vote towards and it's the Lord Mayor and it's all these archaic things. I don't know if you mean, London as an entirety, or ah, sorry, I, I, meant, I meant more London as an entirety as a as a as someone who's yeah. from across the pond and hasn't <laughs> okay. spent as much time there. So London has so okay, so maybe that's a kind of uh, London mayor kind of initiative. I'll, I'll look into that. But um, but uh, what about the data across borders? I don't know if you're. I don't know if you follow that particularly, but the possibility that you know countries become less comfortable with you know data going across borders etc do you see um do you see risks there to data businesses well again there's certain data that countries may deem proprietary and 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 obviously those things are changing all the time uh, but even countries like russia 
have um uh, have fairly open data if you want to go get the data from the city of moscow like it's out there it, it might not be as good as the data from the city of new york but there's a lot of great and it might not be as reliable but there's a lot of great data that 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 that, that that's there and so this is a worldwide phenomena of opening up data and um and allowing researchers from all over the world to to access your data hmm. I see a lot of talk on, I see it increasing on my side of, of kind of using data for macro purposes as the data begins to join up, you know, you're starting to actually be able to read across the data is good enough and widespread enough that you can actually look at a country with it rather than just looking at a company or, or a city or whatever. Um, so that kind of thing is, as you say, as, as this data becomes more available, then it's just begun, like you can start widening your lens a little bit and, and looking at, at, at the whole picture. That's it. right. And, you know, and, and if you think of uh, big organizations, research organizations, let's say the Federal Reserve um, or the Bank of Canada, or, uh, you know, et cetera, these these are very, very, very well researched organizations that um, are uh, that, that need to understand not only the macro economy of the United States, but the macro economy all over the world and even micro, even understanding like a very, very micro economy within the United States of a certain county or something like that and understanding what's happening in that county. Uh, and the, they are, uh, these, these are incredibly talented people and talented teams that have much more ability to do that today than they did in the past because of this, uh, because of all the new data sets that are available. Um, Oren, can I ask you, and um, I could, just because I would feel remiss if I didn't, and I, I feel if people saw a safeguard, Safegraph episode, then it could be a thing that they would want to want to hear about. Um, just to explain the situation recently with the with the um, Roe versus Wade and, and, and where Safegraph was involved and Safegraph's position on it. Yeah, exactly. So one of the things that SafeGraph has uh, data on is data about foot traffic on a given place. So if you ever see on the internet, like when a place is busy by time of day, often that data is coming from SafeGraph. Um, and so, and that, that that's great to understand that you're planning, like when you should go there or, um, you know, lots of other interesting, like a lot of other interesting stats on a given, on a given place. And we had like automatically created that on all these different, you know, millions and millions of places that we, uh, that we track. And, um, and one of which were on these like family planning centers, which, which, you know, in retrospect was a mistake. So, you know, we got, the, that was pointed out and then we stopped doing that. And and just to spell it out, because I just said Roe versus Wade, but a non-US audience may not may not be familiar. Um, this is the possibility that now abortion has become uh, potentially legal in some states. Then the potential that this data could be used to track people visiting abortion clinics, etc. So this was this was something which was flagged, and um, and Safecraft changed their changed their position, changed their work, the the availability of the data on that uh, pretty immediately. Isn't that right? Yeah, but and by the way, one one of the good things about one of the bad things about being transparent, being like completely transparent if you're a data company, is that everyone can like throw arrows at you and stuff like that. But one of the good things about being transparent is like you can move you, you know, people will point things out when you're wrong and that you can make your you can make your products much, much better in response to that. Fantastic. Um is there anything else which you which we should have talked about that we didn't today? No, this has been amazing. <laughs> brilliant. Um, Oren, thank you very much. This is uh, this has been a brilliant conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, but um, but thanks so much. And, and uh, please come again in the future and, and tell me more. 
Thank you, Mark. This has been a lot of fun. 